thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. God's word. After this, there was a, uh, this is out of John chapter five. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and, and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who has said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it um, does to our hearts and our lives, how it can cut through even the, the most proud of us. I pray that today you be glorified in everything that's said and done, God, that I would not get in the way of what you want to speak to your children and that we would hear these words and that we wouldn't just listen to them and wouldn't just think it's interesting or, or information, but instead God would ask your spirit to work in our hearts, to, to apply them to our lives, to, to change the things that need to be changed, to make us more and more like your son, Jesus. It's in his powerful name we pray. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Have you ever been in one of those... Uh, conversations where you're talking and like there's a group of people, there's a group of people that are talking and you feel like every single person at the end of the conversation has completely missed the point of the conversation. That's like every social media conversation, right? Like you're like, wait, what's, what's happening? How are we all missing the entirety, like the truth of what's going on? This is a really interesting section. I, I kind of dub it for myself. It's one of the, the more sad sets of scripture for me. Because it's a story that is incredibly profound in a lot of ways, but it's riddled with a ton of landmines, things that are kind of in the text or around there that need to either be explained or informational. And really what's happening in this beginning section of John chapter 5, it's kind of the turning point where the John, inspired by God, is kind of laying down the groundwork to kind of work at Jesus with the festivals and a number of other things. And so this is kind of where the opposition begins for Jesus in this gospel. And so it's a really hard section because I think... As you look at it and as we describe it, you'll see there's, 
there's not really this like, okay, here are the six or seven applicable things that we need to do. It's really just don't miss Jesus. So you guys can tune out for the rest of the time you want and just remember not to miss Jesus. But that's essentially what this section is. This is an interesting section of scripture. And, I th- and the reason why I say it's sad is because I feel like the man who's healed the, the religious leaders around Jesus, I mean, everyone in this story seems to miss the point but Jesus. Everyone seems to miss it, and it doesn't have one of those happy endings like, oh, okay, cool, let's move on to the next thing. This is kind of the beginning of that opposition that's just so difficult and so hard. And so this is one of those, those sections that like that. This, this section kind of marks the outset of festivals. John chapter 5 through 11, he will see Jesus continuing to kind of speak into these festivals and to work with these festivals. And it's important for us to understand a little bit of context. The festivals and, and the, the, the rituals around this were, were created and put in place to remember some aspect of God, to celebrate God, to worship God. So the fact that the Jews at this time wanted to do these festivals is a really good thing. It was intended to be a way to, to bring about holiness and to, to remember that they're set apart. The, there were many festivals. I mean, many old f- festivals. The, the newest ones were Purim and Hanukkah. Those kind of came centuries in Jesus' day before that. There were liturgies of the temple, and the responsibilities of Jewish families were well established. Three times a year, a Jewish person, a Jewish families were expected to travel up to Jerusalem to worship. There was the, the Passover in the spring and Pentecost seven weeks later. And then in autumn, you had the tabernacles. And, and all of these things had a purpose. They were to celebrate God in his provision through the harvest or through the crop or to, to just celebrate what God has done in the past in history for his people that, that are to be set apart, to be holy, to be set apart for God. And in these things, they were meant to establish and worship God. So these things were really valuable and important and they were good. And this was a rhythm that had been going on for years upon years upon years. And one of the rhythms that's in place is this idea of the Sabbath. And I know that today, many of us, there's a lot of arguing about what Sabbath is or isn't be. In fact, some ways it feels like the argument for Sabbath today is a lot like the argument that they were having back then, just a little bit different spin. But we don't know which festival this is. It could be a Passover. We don't know for sure, but most scholars tend to think that this is just a Sabbath. And all of the festivals, all these festivals were there on purpose. In fact, Leviticus 23, 1 through 2 says this, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. So the people doing this weren't doing it just to to appease themselves. They were doing it because they wanted to be honoring God because his scriptures had told them to do these things. The Sabbath, however, was the only uh, weekly festival that observed, it was observed in homes and synagogues. They didn't have to go to Jerusalem, but a lot of these other festivals would begin with the Sabbath. And the idea was to to stop, to rest, to spend a time, set aside aside for a a time aside for reverence and devotion. It was a sacred assembly. And the festivals were to mimic the idea of Sabbath, that this time was set apart for God. We really don't know what feast this is, but we know that Jesus is kind of set all of a sudden into Jerusalem at these pools, Pool of Bethesda, and it says in Aramaic, or it could be Hebrew, that that's where it is. There's some argument about the language, but I have been there, and they have excavated this out. You can see these pools now. There's two of them, and they have the colonnades and all those things in place, but it's interesting. Jesus makes his way back to Jerusalem, and then in chapter 6, he'll be back in Galilee, and it's like, wait, which, which one is it, and how, how are we going? Again, John isn't trying to find some timeline, but this section of scripture, this, this chunk right here is establishing and setting up and doing something to help us move forward and understand what, what, God is, what John is 
not hidden all along, that Jesus is God and that life comes through him. He's not hiding that fact. He's not trying to stop that. He's trying to just continue to set it up. And so this is one of those stories that to me is sad, especially when you think about it, counter to what just happened with the official son. The official son to me is that hallmark ending, right? He comes and the boy's healed and, and they all believe. We don't get that in this story. In fact, we don't know. In fact, this story is, is just reeking with a need. It just needs so much understanding of conversation. I wish we had a little bit more sentence structure, a little bit more conversation between this man and this. But I want to I just real quickly talk about this because I think if we're not... If we don't pay attention to what God is doing here, we miss kind of what he's setting us up moving forward in, in, in the rest of this. So this is a lot of information, but it's important for us to understand this, this person, this invalid, this, this person is at this pool of Bethesda. Now in this area, there would be hundreds of people with all kinds of ailments that were around this pool. These pools were, um, were really interesting. There was a theory about, uh, if you look at verse four in your Bible, I, well, you'll realize there is no verse 4 because it was added depending upon which version you have. Most likely verse 4 was a footnote at one point to bring context to, to verse 7, which is the idea of why this person believes he needs to get in this water to be healed. And it's this idea, they think that, uh, that some scribes along the way added it. It's not in the most early manuscripts of John, so that's why it just ESV doesn't change the numbers. It just skips it altogether. But you you see this kind of this idea that, that, that the pools were... We, we know from history that they were kind of red, reddish in hue because the minerals were in them, most likely fed by a spring. And apparently the, the, either the tail or someone had seen it, pool would water up and if the first person to get in would be healed. Now we don't know if that's true and I don't think that's the point for us to understand if that's actually happening. It could happen. We've seen God heal in a lot crazier ways in scripture. You can go and read that. But, but we also, we have no idea if it is, if that's the point. But what we do know is that this man 38 years has been coming back to this pool because he believed it could. 38 years. So, so I know like wives' tales and all those other things can kind of carry some, but like when you're talking about a person that would have had to most likely have gotten carried to the pool, most likely would come on Sabbaths or on, on festivals in hopes that that's when the water would spring up. 38 years of his life. Now, I, I know that we have a lot of structures. If you know anyone that's paralyzed or has struggled with that, it's really hard to do life in our 21st century really hard to do life. There are a lot of things that you can't do. In this day and age, it's almost impossible to live. This man relied entirely on other people, entirely to move him, to get him. Someone would have to carry him on his mat to this pool in hopes that he could get in there. He would have to beg. His family would have to take care of him. If he was paralyzed, we don't know exactly paralytic. We don't know exactly what part of him was paralyzed, but most likely his hands were incredibly calloused and cut up and really, really dirty because he would use those to adjust or to situate himself. If he was really paralyzed, then we, we know that paralyzed people can't control their bowel movements or their bladders as well. So he probably smelt and spent his whole life being looked at as an invalid, as someone as less than, as less than the less lens. This man had a, a, a hard life. And I don't know about you if you've experienced any kind of physical ailment. You can tend to grow weary in those. Think about 38 years. 38 years being looked down on, being 100% reliant on other people. 38 years. And I feel like that should be the premise of the story, but it's not. It's not. That just gets watered down by a whole lot of different interaction here. 
And so Jesus comes up to this man. He sees him. And this is what we have to remember. Jesus seeks him out. There's a, there's a beautiful character of God that we have to see in this. This is just a compassionate side of Jesus because this man shows no display of belief, no display of faith, nothing. But Jesus, where there's hundreds of people that he could snap his finger, he could say the word, and every single person could be healed, he walks up to this one individual. I'm just going to call him Joe. He walks up to Joe and says, Joe, do you want to be healed? And Joe does what many of us do when we get fixated on God doing something. We miss God and we look for something else. And Joe's speaking to Jesus, speaking to God, speaking to the Son of God, and his answer isn't, I want to be healed. He instantly goes to, well, yeah, I mean, but every time I try to get in the waters, he keeps looking for the means of being healed in some waters and not the person that could actually heal him in front of him face to face. He says, I want to. And I, I, I picture him saying this kind of begrudgingly, angry. Everyone's about their own selves. 38 years have been set here, and every time the water stirs up, everyone passes me over because I can't pull myself in fast enough. And Jesus doesn't engage in that conversation, doesn't engage in does the pool do it or not. He just says, okay, well, get up, take your mat, and walk. Now, this is one of those times I wish the scriptures would give us a little bit more interaction. Like, did he, did it, was it slow? Like, did it start wiggling his toes and be like, whoa, my toes wiggle? You know, did he just like jump up and start doing a dance? You know, like what, what happened in that moment? But I, I like to believe, and this is my own conjecture, I like to believe that he wasn't silent. And there's hundreds of people around, and they're all keeping their eyes fixed on this water. So there's a good chance that they missed it altogether anyways, because they're just waiting for that moment to stir and to jump in and to be the first one in. And all of a sudden, this man who's been coming for 38 years, spending all his time by this thing, stands up, rolls up his mat, and picks it on his shoulder, which is very light, and just starts walking out of there. I like to think he's like, did you see that? Look at this. Look what happened to me. I'm walking. Like, look at his legs. They were probably thin and frail and bony. Like, there's no muscle. And all of a sudden, he's standing on them, and they're supporting his body. And he starts looking at the ground that he would have had to have pulled himself through and rubbed himself through. And he's like walking with it, going, I can wipe the dust off of me and move forward. Scriptures tell us that Jesus just disappears in that moment. Why would Jesus only do it with one? The character that we see in Jesus is that he is compassionate. He cares. He went right to the one that made, I mean, this person's been there forever. And it seems if the story just ended here, it'd be like, okay, that was interesting. Like, what do we take from that? Like, if you're looking for healing somewhere else, it's great, move on. But, but it doesn't. And it, it turns, it just sours so quickly. So he gets up and takes off his bed. He says, do you want to get, get up and take your bed? And at once, the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. And then verse 9, if it would just ended there, it would have been awesome. But it doesn't. It says, now, that day was the Sabbath. Oh, man. Jesus, could you have waited one day? I mean, he spent 38 years. Did you have to do it right now? Why right now? Why not tomorrow? Why not show up a day early? Why do you have to do this on the Sabbath? This is where the gospel is going to push on the festivals and in all these situations, these rituals that are in place, all good and serve a purpose, but have gotten inundated with all kinds of wrong things. And so the Jews believed that you couldn't do this. You couldn't carry a mat on the Sabbath. In fact, the Old Testament teaches the Sabbath is good. The Old Testament said that it's forbidden to work on the Sabbath. But what was work? One scholar says it this way. He says, the assumption in the scripture seemed to be that work refers to one's customary employment. 
But judging by the Mishnah, which is a do- dominant rabbinic uh, kind of opinion, articles of legal stuff, all the things that were due, they, they had analyzed the prohibition into 39 classes of work. So there were 39 different categories of what was work on the Sabbath that came in place that were operating at this point. And, in, um, and uh, including taking or carrying anything from one domain to another. So picking up the mat was classified as work, therefore was forbidden to do on the, on the, on the Sabbath. However, cases of compassion such as carrying a paralytic would not have been work. So him getting carried there was not work, but him leaving with the mat was work, Okay. So it's, it's, by Old Testament standards, it's not really clear if the healed man was, was breaking the law because he didn't normally carry mats for a living. Okay, he didn't do that. According to the tradition of the elders, the man was breaking the law since he was contravening one of the prohibited, prohibited 39 categories of work to which the law was understood to refer. Now, it's really interesting. These rules, these rabbis, these rules that they put in place, the reason why they were in place, hear me on this, this is so important for us. They were in place because they wanted to honor God. They were so worried that they would, they would miss up on the one law, so they started putting extra stuff in place just to make sure that if they, if they failed at something, they never really failed God. And ultimately, what they were doing is they were working out their salvation. It was, is this is how we are holy, by observing these festivals, by taking care of the Sabbath. This is how holiness is established, by working it out in this way. And that's where the, we see a meet. When John says Jews, by the way, I want to be really, really clear. This is not like some anti-Jew thing. When he says the word Jews, he's usually speaking of the religious leaders that are in opposition to Jesus. Jesus was a Jew. Disciples were Jew. Apostle Paul was Jew. We're not saying anti-Jew stuff here, okay? I just want to be really clear on that. So don't have some hatred for them in any way. It's just that this is a group of people and the people that followed him that John just kind of shorthands it to Jew and says these are the religious leaders, part of the Jewish faith, that were in opposition to Jesus. What the rabbis rules were misunderstanding of God's design for the Sabbath is that the Sabbath was not means to God's approval. The Sabbath was, was not merely a rule for humans, but a gift for humans. We see that in Mark 2.27, and we see that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, 2.28. Mark 2.28. The Sabbath was good. The Sabbath has a purpose. Real quickly, I want to I pause in this section. I want to just talk about Sabbath and then get back into this real quickly because I think it's important. The Sabbath was, was created by God, intended to be a rhythm for us. We see it in, in um, Exodus, Exodus uh, 29 through 11. God displays the Sabbath rest in the creation order. We see that happen. see it in Genesis 2 as well. Right? The Sabbath is good, but what, what we think sometimes when we think of God resting, we think that that. Uh, God was tired from creation and therefore had to rest. That's not the case. Isaiah 40, 28 says it this way. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. So hear that on this. Now, what we believe scripture teach and what the rabbis agree upon, and this is what's really important for the end of this text, is that everyone agrees that God is still working on the Sabbath because he is upholding the universe. The rest that he did was created for us. Now, as Christians today, I want to be really clear, we have got to learn to rest in the Lord. Rest is there for a purpose. We should have a rhythm of intentional rest every week, team, time that is meant to be worshipful to God and Jesus, not just time to just disconnect, although disconnecting may be a part of it, but a time where you leave your work and you move, and everything you do in this space, in this time, is to be worshipful, redeem time 
to rest in the Lord, in God, and in Jesus. Now, the instant we start getting rigid and put systems and say things or think we're holier than thou because someone else, we're doing the same thing just in a different way the rabbis were doing. We're guarding something that we believe is valuable, but we're making the guarding things more important than the actual thing that's valuable there. It's the same issue with the temple worship that we talked about with the woman at the well. So it's important to rest. It's important for us to rest, but here's the reason why not many people enjoy stopping or resting. I've seen this in my own life, and I believe it's true of many of us, is because we don't enjoy what the Sabbath was for, ultimately God. We don't find our joy in God. Our joy is not in there. We don't, we don't enjoy spending time with him. We think about time with him, it's like, oh man, I'm just gonna have to worship him and pray and, and read scripture. And, oh, like, and it, it, we, we lament that. We get, we get tired of God. We don't take joy in him. So why then would we ever take time to rest in him? People whose hearts are set more on the pleasures of the world than the enjoyment of God will feel the Sabbath command as a burden, not a blessing. 1 John 5, 3 says it this way, right? It says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. The only way that that makes sense is if you recognize the love behind it. One scholar says it this way. He says, Jesus didn't come to abolish the Sabbath, but to dig it out from under the mountain of legalistic sediment and give it to us again as a blessing rather than a burden. It is a day for us showing mercy and a day for doing good. It should, be, should not be governed, governed rigidly by narrow definitions of what is work and what is not. It is a day to focus on the Lord. And now Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, so it is a day to focus on Jesus. And it is impossible that a day focused on Jesus should be a burden to believing hearts because he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So if you are not taking or finding rest, I would encourage you to find rest. A rhythm of rest is healthy. A checking out from the world and into our Father is a beautiful thing. Find ways to work that in. In this setting, I wish it was that simple. It's not what was happening. What the rabbis here are, are fighting for, what the religious leaders here are fighting for, is they're fighting the issue of the fact that they were doing something they shouldn't be doing based on the laws that they put in place to hopefully stay holy. And this is where this conversation to me just gets so crazy. Okay, here's this man. I'm believing he's probably still smiling. It's my conjecture, but I'm pretty sure he's smiling as he's carrying his mat. First time he's carrying anything. I'm walking along carrying this stuff. Like, this is awesome. After 38 years of not being able to carry anything, and, and the, the Sabbath police, which is another whole line of, of people that could break the Sabbath to uphold the Sabbath against other people, but the Sabbath police catch him. They see him moving about carrying something, and they're like, whoa, you're breaking the Sabbath. Now, that was punishable. That was punishable by a lot of different things depending upon what they were doing and, and how it was going, but it was, a, it was a big deal. And they're like, what are you doing? You're carrying something. What are you, you can't do this. And, and this man, you would think he, he would change the subject or, or focus on something. He says, the man who healed me told me to do this. He said, go, take up your mat and walk. And it's crazy. Now, I don't, let me just give us this. This is free, okay? If, if you interact with someone and he says, Jesus healed me, don't move on to the action. Let's stop and talk about that for a moment. Like, wait, 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 what, what, what happened? This man healed you? You were healed? Like, let's talk about it. They don't even care. In fact, what they realize, because of their fear of these laws being broken and ultimately not being holy or set apart before God, they move beyond this man. They move beyond Joe, right? And Joe is no longer the issue. The issue is they now hear that someone told Joe to break the Sabbath, which is a bigger deal. Because now it's not just one person doing it. It's that there's someone's teaching contrary to what they believe in. So they're, they're already locked down. Who is this man? What's going on? Who did this? And he just 
I don't know. I don't actually don't know who he was, which is another part that's really interesting to me. I feel like I feel like if Jesus had said those words to me, I know he slips away, but I feel like I would have tried to grab him, like, wait, who are you? What did you how did you do this? Like, I want to know you more. But he was in the moment, maybe just lost because he could stand. He was looking at his legs. He's like, I didn't know my, my toes could wiggle like that. I had no idea. Like, maybe he's just confused and, and Jesus slips away. So he has no idea who Jesus is. He's like, I don't know who it was. It was just some guy that met me at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath, which is, again, we got, we got all sorts of issues here in the Sabbath laws that are happening. And he's saying, look, you, 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 you've got to be kidding me. Who is this man? So then he goes on and he's withdrawn. And afterwards, we don't know how long, the man's in the temple. Now, we assume he's in the temple because he's going to do sacrifices or worship or do something in regards to, like, I can now, I'm healed and I can do things or to, to, to bring about cleanliness in himself because he wasn't clean and these things. Who knows why he's there, but he's at the temple. And here's what's interesting. Jesus, it says Jesus finds him. See, if we just ended at him healing him before, it would have made sense. Okay, he healed, whatever, that's great. But Jesus finds him and has this really interesting interaction with him. He says, see, you are well, with an exclamation point. See, you're well. Almost like he's trying to wrestle with the unbelief that this man had when he was saying the pool is supposed to do it. This is an affirmation that it wasn't some like partial healing. It's like this man is well. He's healed. And he says, see, you are well. And then he says to him, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And oh, goodness, guys, this is full of landmines. Scholars love this one a lot. So the question is, what's worse that could happen to him? And was what happened to him for the first 38 years tied to sin? The answer to that biblically is maybe or maybe not. Yes or, or no. We don't know. We do see scripture all over. We see David. We see Moses in Deuteronomy. We see David talking about it in Psalms. We also see in 1 Corinthians that, that there are times where we see that God is working in sin and physical ailment. We see both happen. But then we also see the disciples later on in John are like, was this man, because whose sin was it? Was it his or his family's? And he says, it's neither. So, so both are present. I tend to think that what Jesus is doing here, because it's, it's laying out with what's going to run into this huge discord of his authority, I tend to think what he's doing is he's trying to say, look, holiness is not based on the, ra- the, the rabbi systems and all those other things. Holiness comes through me. Because what is he doing? He's asking this man to do something that only he can do if he submits his life to Jesus. He can't sin no more on his own. Like, he has to come into Jesus. He needs Jesus to do so. So he's, he's saying, look, this healing was, a, again, a part of it, and that's great. 38 years, you hadn't been able to walk. The rest of your life, you'll be able to walk. That's awesome, but you'll still die. And ultimately, what is worse than anything than 38 years of, of being miserable and smelling and being an outcast, the thing that's worse than that is being spending an eternity apart from God. The thing that is worse than that is to, to, to not know your Savior. This is what Jesus is warning him of. He says, go and sin no more. Now, I'd like to think at this moment that Joe had that moment of like, huh, okay, I can walk. The guy that just told me to get up and walk, and I'm walking. That, that's a miracle in itself. Just told me not to sin anymore. I'd like to think he's like, okay, Jesus, can you tell me how to do that? Like, what, what does this look like? Does that mean like, do I need to follow these, these, these rules? Do I need to be better at the festivals? What do I need to do here? I'd like to think he has that conversation, but it doesn't look like it. I'd even like to think that he came to know the Lord, but it doesn't even seem to be that because it's the exact opposite of what the official son and the official happened just before this. The official believes and his whole family believes. There's no, none of that. In fact, what this man does is he heads right to those religious leaders and say, hey, I know who it is. It's that guy, Jesus. He turns him in. Now, 
He could be turning him in. This is conjecture. He could be turning him in because he is fearful of the fact that he still needs to be adjudicated for breaking the Sabbath. He could be turning him in because he's like, look, you guys are all worried about this, but the guy made it so I can walk. Come meet him, and we'll figure this out. Like, obviously, you religious leaders, you know all these things. If this guy can heal, then there's something really cool about him. He's at least a prophet. Like, maybe he's connecting him. But really, it seems more like he just kind of doesn't seem to care and brings the opposition in. And, and here marks the rest of the opposition for Jesus for the rest of his time on earth. He comes up, and the individuals were... And this is why the Jews, the, the religious leaders, were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them. I love this because they didn't ask a question. <laughs> no one asks a question. They're just persecuting him. So Jesus answers them. And he says, my father is working until now, and I am working. Now, there's times it's like, oh, Jesus, there's so many things you could have done. Like, you could have done this healing one day earlier and one day later, missed this whole thing. And if you'd have just said the father here and not my father, wouldn't have been an issue. But Jesus isn't worried about how people feel or think. He's about setting it right. He's about reminding them that he is God, that he has all authority, and that the only way to God is through him. And so he aligns himself to this, and this takes the, the Sabbath law, and it's like, gone. They don't care about this. Now it's blasphemy because he's claiming to be equal to God. The way that they hear it, what's interesting, the way that they hear it is they think he's actually... Um, claiming to kind of replace God in what he's doing. Jesus did not claim, this is what the scholar says, Jesus does not claim to take the place of God or be an alternative to God, which is what the Jews meant by making himself equal to God. What Jesus, as the one and only Son of God, claimed was to be sent by God on mission for God, doing the works of God, obedient to God, and bringing glory to God. That is not the role of one who displaces God, but one who is a representative or emissary of God. As God's divine agent, Jesus has the right and the ability to do what God does. And this is what they missed. The Joe missed it. <laughs> the religious leaders missed it. They all missed it. Jesus was intentionally working on the Sabbath to do something, to start this conversation. He intentionally uses the word, my father, makes it personal, not just a child of God, but the one and only son of God. He does this because he's not afraid of what they believe in the opposition that would come. And this is really important for us to understand. Jesus is persecuted from this point on. And Jesus says to the disciples at the very end, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So church, let me be clear. You will, you will and should be experiencing persecution if you're a follower of Jesus. It's just a matter of time. It's going to happen. And all this, he's saying, look, I have the authority. I am God. I am the Son of God. I'm, I'm able to do this. You've seen the Father work. You'll see me. This is not the only time he declares he is this. This comes across all over. It's already happened in John 1, and, and it will continue to happen through the rest of it. But everyone, Joe and the religious leaders, and everyone misses the fact that God is about, that Jesus is doing something so much more profound than the, the standardized of their holiness that they believe needed to happen comes through Jesus. And he's saying, don't miss it. Don't miss it. Don't lose sight of it. In the first coming of the Son of God into the world, we receive four tastes of healing power. The full healing of all his people and all their diseases and disabilities awaits the second coming of Christ. And the aim of these four tastes, which we receive now, is to call us to faith and holiness, as one scholar said. So he's doing these things to bring about holiness. He's doing these things to remind them about holiness, and they miss it. So, so what's the, 
information for us. I guess I, I would say just stop sinning. That's what he says. But you, you'll never do that without Jesus. You'll never find rest, Sabbath rest, without Jesus. You really won't. He, we, it takes, it takes hit, surrendering to him and the indwelling of the Spirit for us to even follow any of the things that God has put in place. And what Jesus is saying is, look, I fulfill the law. <laughs> I am it. You come to the Father through me. He is establishing this right here. And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, I believe we are just as capable of making the same mistake that Joe and these religious leaders did on either side. For us, the modern-day Joe is that we believe that our healing will come through something else. And we continue to fix our eyes on the pool as opposed to Jesus. We believe that our, our salvation will come through our political party, or we believe that our hope will come through our finances or our next job or our spouse. We become the proverbial Joe in that way where we start fixing our eyes on all these other things, and Jesus is like, no, no, I'm the one that does that. And we can fall a prey to being the religious leaders where we get so expectant on the religious system in place that the religious system that we're doing and everything, the structure, that as good as it is and the purpose was to point to God, we make it about this. And that's why I think God takes us through all of this, through John, all the way to John 11, and keeps hitting these festivals over and over and over again. And Jesus keeps teaching truth into these festivals to say, look, I fulfill, I fulfill, I fulfill. It's through me. They were pointing to me. Your hope is in me. This is what God is doing over and over and over again. And you and I, we're capable of being the Joes or the religious leaders all the time. I mean, I can't imagine spending 38 years being looked down and missing it. But yet, I spent 20-ish years not knowing Jesus. And then he pursued me, and I am now his child adopted in, and that is the most amazing miracle ever. And there are times in my life when I move on that I think I move on from that miracle and that truth. And I forget what that really means. And I forget who I am because of that. I start believing the lies. I believe what I own say. I start listening to the wrong voices. So often we can start just getting just slightly off. And yet when we read this, it's like, how? How, how does that even happen? Well, we're all capable of it. We all are capable of it. And so we're going to do something today. Coming out of this, we're going to move into communion, a time of communion where our ultimate healing comes from, right? Like it comes through the, the forgiveness of sins and Jesus' sacrifice. That's where we are healed. That's where we are set apart. That's where we become holy and blameless and righteous is in the surrendering to Jesus as Lord and Savior. But we're also going to take a time of communal prayer. And I think this is important for us because many of you right now you, you need healing. And it may be physical, and it may be emotional, and it may be spiritual, and it may be financial. But many of you right now, in the need of those healings, what you're doing, as we're going to run into the, all these miracles that Jesus does, it would be foolish for us to not stop. In all those things, if you think it's, if your issues are financial, you may forget that you need to go to Jesus to find that healing. And you'll start looking at scheming your own plans. If your needs are, are spiritual, then you're only going to get it through Jesus. But we can tend to. If your needs are emotional, you might try and think, well, if I could just do these things, if I could just rest better, then I will be better. Yeah, you know what? Rest might help. 
But ultimately, you got to stop looking at the means that you believe that healing may come from and look at the one that actually can heal you. And that's Jesus Christ. And so we're going to spend a second, a time here, and after we take some communion, to pray. Pray for healing. Pray for healing in our hearts. And whether God decides to heal you miraculously, stand up, pick your mat, and walk out. Or he chooses to heal you through common grace. He will get the glory, and he deserves all of it. And it's still him working. And so let me pray for us, and then we'll move into communion and prayer. So after I'm done praying, you can grab your communion, come back to your seats, and we'll take communion together. Heavenly Father, thank you for thank you for your word. God, I found myself reading this just mad at this invalid. <laughs> just mad. How could he how could he experience such grace and love and compassion and turn away from you? And then I just remember so often in my own life how quickly I am to abandon your truth and to walk in my own flesh. And forgive us for looking for healing in anything outside of you. God, forgive us for making the healing the thing that we worship and idolize as opposed to the healer. And God, I pray, I pray boldly, I pray confidently asking that you would do what only you can do. You would take the brokenness in every bit of our lives, the pride, the insecurities, the, the anger, the bitterness, the unforgiveness, and God, you would just rip that from us and replace it with your love, your grace, your mercy, more and more and more of you. And God, so as we come to a time of communion, as we come to a time of um, prayer, God, I pray that we would not be, um, I pray that our hearts would be inclined to your ways and you'd give us the desires of your heart, of our hearts. We thank you for the work you're doing in our lives. We thank you that um, there are many people that can experience healing today, um, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, anyway. But ultimately, God, your, your, your target, your aim, your desire isn't just a physical ailment being, being brought to peace or a financial ailment being brought to peace. It's, it's about bringing about holiness, setting us apart as your people, as your children. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for all you've done. We thank you for the ways that you've already healed us. Don't let us ever forget those that are here today that believe in you, the miracle that is us being called children and co-heirs with Christ. I pray that we'd be a people that have the faith to experience the miraculous and give you the glory and have the faith to wait for the miraculous and give you the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. And if you can stand, stand with me. Let's do this together. This is from um, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and 24. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake in the bread. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Let's partake in the cup. God, we thank you. Thank you for this expression of gratitude. 
for reminding us of what you've done for us, God. We thank you for your son, Jesus, for the price that he paid for our sins that we can know the Father. Thank you for saving us, God, for being the price that we should have paid for our sins. We thank you. We thank you. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Um, as you remain standing, I, um, we're going to go into a time of prayer right now. And what Brett mentioned earlier, um, um, the verse that came to my mind is First Peter 2, verses 24 and 25. And it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. For the man, though pool was his only hope, for us, Christ is our only hope. And this this is the time I want us to pray for healing. I know so often we, we depend on others to pray for us, but the truth is we have Jesus. And for your physical healing, for your spiritual healing, for your emotional healing, God can heal us. Do you believe that God can heal you? Do you believe that God can heal you from your depression, from your anxiety, from your anger, from your rage, from your addictions? Do you believe that God can truly heal you? And I, I want you to risk this morning in praying aloud to Jesus and say to God, and say, God, I believe that you can. I help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. And we're going to have this time open for you to cry out to God. And ask God to heal you. God, we thank you that your healing brings holiness in our lives. Um, that that your comfort brings us closer to you and knowing you more and experiencing your peace in a profound way in spite of the brokenness that's all around us, God. We thank you that you can go back to our past and, and, and heal us from emotional wounds that have happened to us. Um, we thank you that we can, we can rejoice in suffering and in pain. We thank you that your healing is constant, God, that you're drawing us closer to you and refi you're refining us. Um, you're always saving us, God. You never stop saving us. We thank you for that. We thank you for your sanctification that draws us close to you. And God, um, help us to recognize the brokenness that's in us, God. And talk to you about it. Help us to acknowledge that we need a Savior. We need a Savior in our brokenness. Um, because you know all the brokenness that's in us, God. You know it, whether we say it or not. Help us to sit and acknowledge that we need a Savior. Thank you for your spirit that moves in our hearts, uh, that convicts us, that comforts us, that encourages us. Thank you, God, for that. Thank you. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. 
We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him 